Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. Selena Koch, Executive Editor. I'm Josh Berlin, Director of Business Development. Well, today's the first Monday of June, and that usually means we're going to talk ASCO, nothing but ASCO, but we've heard from FDA... They have approved Biogen's Alzheimer's therapy, aducanumab. I was quite surprised as I saw that first thing. I was expecting more of a midnight decision. Where do we even begin? Selena, you've been following this for years now for us. Yeah, well, the thing that really surprised me, and in retrospect, maybe it shouldn't have, because a lot of folks have suggested this, is that FDA chose the accelerated approval option. I had assumed, and apparently incorrectly, that in order to use a biomarker as a surrogate endpoint, FDA would want to have seen in the past a demonstration that that biomarker and clinical benefit correlate with each other. And that has not been demonstrated for amyloid. Now, you got to be careful here because this is the point in the conversation where lots of people will jump in and conflate things and say, well, the only reason previous amyloid therapies haven't worked is because they haven't really tested their hypothesis. This is the first drug to really clear amyloid from the brain. And that might be true, but the point is not what could have happened in the past or what could happen in the future. I was thinking FDA wouldn't want to use something as a surrogate endpoint if that relationship hadn't been demonstrated and it simply hasn't been demonstrated. You know, that turned out not to be the case. They decided the basic biology of the disease was strong enough to say that there must be a link there and that it's reasonable to think that clinical benefit could come from lowering amyloid. And they've done this in the past, right? We saw it in the Sarepta decision with DMD as well. So, So Selena, although I think the Sarepta decision is different because there is a much stronger biology understanding of the relationship between dystrophin and Duchenne muscular dystrophy, here we do have and continue to have this phenomenon. So I suppose one question is this, we now have a new marker officially, biomarker officially for Alzheimer's disease and it is amyloid, beta amyloid. So what does that mean? Everybody can now rush out and use beta amyloid and reinterrogate <laughs> their trials, what now? So I was on a call with FDA just a few minutes ago And they said a few things that were relevant to this. One, they're all in on the amyloid hypothesis. Peter Stein, the head of the Office of New Drug Development, Patricia Cavazzoni, the head of CEDAR, both said that reducing amyloid plaque affects the underlying disease and changes the course of Alzheimer's. Full stop. They're all in on it. What they didn't do is provide any data to support that assertion. And I think that's going to be extraordinarily controversial. That is science by assertion rather than science by evidence. See, that's because the data don't exist. Well, they said that they were following science, but I think a lot of people are going to say what they're following is science fiction. The other thing is that they did address the issue, Peter Stein did, about what about all of the other that have targeted amyloid. And what he said is, so I'm quoting, he says, it's difficult to extrapolate conclusions from one, two, or other antibodies but our clinical pharmacology colleagues looked very carefully across all the antibody programs, six other programs. And then he went on to say that many of the earlier studied antibodies really had only slight or no reduction in amyloid plaque and that aducanumab did. So basically he was saying, no, you can't just, you can't just submit the other six and expect that they're going to get 
approved. But again, they're not releasing the basis for this assertion, and they're not releasing the basis for the assertion that there's a link, a firm link that's been associated between amyloid reduction and clinical benefit. The other thing I think that's really problematic about this, they said repeatedly that, well, if it turns out not to have clinical benefit, then they'll remove it from the market. They didn't provide any kind of timelines for that. And yeah, I, I mean, would that's submit be that yes. I would submit that everybody who's at FDA who's talking about that now will be retired by the time those trials are completed and there's definitive data that everybody agrees on about this. So the way I think about this is they have just unilaterally asserted that the earth is the center of the universe as opposed to the sun or we all revolve around the earth, whatever it is. They've decided whatever decision they've decided based on what's likely to be true. Selena, what does this mean for the amyloid hypothesis? Is the field going to now say this? We've now dotted the I, crossed the T, and the amyloid hypothesis is proven. So there are a couple of amyloid therapies in late stage development right now, like Roche's gentanurumab, Lilly's donanumab. Assuming those trials go better than the aducanumab trials, say they're not terminated for futility. And if they continue, well, at least in the case of donanumab, continue to show consistent results with aducanumab, it could be that these next few therapies retroactively validate the surrogate endpoint, right? And that would be a nice outcome. You could also end up in another situation where we end up with a glut of therapies on the market with no clear evidence of benefit because they use this surrogate endpoint and this surrogate endpoint continuing not to be validated. I would suggest that there's a third outcome possible, which is that the field decides that FDA is not a valid scientific arbiter of where the science is here and that people move on. I think that This is going to put payers and family members and patients in a very difficult space. And all of them are going to be having to second guess whether FDA has made the right decision here, especially since they haven't really released the data that you would need. I agree, Stephen. There's a lot on the line. I mean, you can imagine that, pick your number of years down the line, three, four, five, six, whatever. You have a lot of patients that might be on this. They might be taking it, might be paying a lot of money for it. And what if there actually is no benefit? It's obviously not the patients themselves, it's their caregivers, right? But if there is no benefit, is there going to be a backlash? Or do we just live in a cycle of hope that by the time that happens, there will be new therapies, they'll be looking forward to those? Well, I think, but I think there's tremendous pressure on this to work. Well, look, hope, hope is not a plan. That's not really realistic. Yeah. But I think that there's enough subjectivity here that there are going to be people who will claim that they have benefited There will be family members who will claim that they will have benefited. And there's no way when you're looking at an individual to know whether they would have progressed more rapidly in the absence of this therapy than they did with it. There's going to be enough uncertainty there that there will be patients who will always say, there will always be patients who will adamantly assert that they have benefited from this. And I think that's going to prevent FDA from ever taking definitive action against this. And that is what happened during the advisory committee, by the way, a meeting. They paraded through all these individual patients who swore up and down that this therapy was effective for them. And they knew the whole time they were on it, even though it was blinded and they didn't find out till later. And I just sat there thinking, well, what about all those folks in the placebo group who also thought for sure they had some kind of benefit only to find out they had placebo later? How come they're not parading those folks by us? But no, I tend to agree. I think patients are aware that this is not a cure. 
right? This is a very marginal therapy. The amount of benefit, if you believe there is benefit, is right up on the threshold of clinical meaningfulness. So there will be no way to know. Patients will get worse over time. There's no way to know if they would have been even worse without it. There just won't be. So utilization of the therapy could diminish over time anyway, because it is a burdensome therapy. It's not like a pill you can just easily take that's cheap. You have to come in for infusions every month. You'll have to get pre-approval. They'll need to be tracking because it comes with this risk of brain swelling, like repeat MRIs probably, to make sure that's not happening. And that is in the label. I have another question about that. When we discussed this last week and last month and last year, (laughs) over the years, what about APOE4 status? How does that play into this? Well, FDA didn't put any preconditions on who could use this. It's a broad label for all Alzheimer's patients. In the press call, Peter Stein said that there's no correlation between APOE4 or any other marker and effectiveness. And FDA isn't making any kind of requirements around which Alzheimer's patients can get this drug. They also are not requiring PET scans to establish amyloid status at any point. I want to circle back to one thing because Selena mentioned the ADCOM, the advisory committee meeting. And I think that one of the things that's interesting to point out is that the possibility of getting accelerated approval based on a surrogate endpoint was actually mentioned briefly during the advisory committee meeting. And Billy Dunn, that's the FDA official who's in charge of this review, said that wasn't on the table. And I think that a lot of people are going to come back and look at this. I'm sure we are in our reporting and wonder what happened between the advisory committee meeting and today that put it back on the table. Well, we have I mean, I suspect, Yeah, I mean, I suspect they just wanted to approve the therapy, but they also wanted to acknowledge that their advisors were right, that clinical benefit had not yet been demonstrated. And so this sort of allows them to do both, get it on the market and acknowledge that. Yeah, let's be clear. PET scans were performed before the trials for Biogen. They had a baseline level of amyloid. That's what this is all based on. That's not going to be required for patients, as far as I can see from the label. So I think it's pretty clear to me, at least, FDA wanted to approve this. You could argue they bent over backwards to approve this. Steve, thoughts about what this is going to mean for the FDA, dare I say it, for the next commissioner of the FDA? A few thoughts. One, if this had happened during the Trump administration, there would have been a tremendous outcry. People would have said, this is the White House must have interfered in this decision and had their thumbs on the scale. I said last week that whatever FDA does in aducanumab won't set a precedent across the FDA but it will affect people's confidence in the entire FDA. And I'll stick with that. One of the things that was also mentioned on the press call today, Patricia Cavazzoni said that she expects accelerated approval to be used for other Alzheimer's drugs and more widely for neurodegenerative disorders. So she said that accelerated approval has been of tremendous benefit for cancer, and she expects that it's going to be of tremendous benefit for neurodegenerative disorders, and this sets a precedent for that. I think that's something that's important to consider. I also think, though, that the perception that FDA has been arbitrary, that it's used the mantra that it's following the science, but it hasn't actually done that, or it hasn't demonstrated that to the satisfaction of a lot of scientists, is going to affect people's trust in the agency, and it's going to lead companies, I've already heard this morning from people who are on the boards of some companies, 
that's going to lead companies to think that they might be able to take similar shortcuts in other areas outside of neurodegenerative disorders and hope for the best, especially if they can align with patient groups. Whether that's the case, whether it's really going to work, it's really too early to say, but it certainly is giving the impression that FDA is willing to do that. So I have to say, I started out in neuro, my heart, so to speak, is in neuro. And it's an area that for 20 years, I've been saying, is going to take off. It's always just about to take off. And I really think that something like more use of accelerated approval in that field is probably a good thing. Does that mean I think this is a great decision? No, I don't. But if it ushers in an era of new therapies where I'm going to assume that we're going to be talking about therapies that do no harm, that's also part of the equation. There really is a lot of need. And I think we have to be sensitive to that. And I think the scientific community will look at this and say they made an arbitrary science decision. There's a lot of patients out there that will say, you're being pure on my back and I'm willing to risk that. There are also going to be people who are going to argue that this decision does patients no good, not only because it subjects them to potential adverse effects, but because it's going to complicate the search for other drugs that might actually be effective against Alzheimer's. Yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, I've talked to a lot of people at companies who say it doesn't really complicate the search in in any meaningful way. If aducanumab is a background therapy, that's what drug developers do. They deal with background therapies in their trials all the time. There's FDA guidance for how to run combinations, for example. It has to complicate it in a sense, a few senses. One, it's going to increase the cost. They're going to have to pay for aducanumab therapy and the monitoring that's associated with it. They're going to have to do drug interaction studies before they can do any kind of a trial of a drug that's added on top of aducanumab. And if they have a drug, for example, that produces the same kind of adverse effects that aducanumab produces... They won't be able to study them on top of aducanumab potentially because that would produce unacceptable risks. That's true. Although for the next set of therapies in Alzheimer's, which are the anti-tau therapies, people generally don't expect them to cause aria. It's amyloid deposition on the, the blood vessels and then its removal, leaving those spots on the vessels exposed and vulnerable that they think causes the brain swelling, which shouldn't happen with tau because it, it doesn't deposit there on the vessels. But yeah, that doesn't mean it can't show up. Selena, has anybody done tau plus amyloid in a trial? Uh, to my knowledge, not yet. Companies have combined amyloid MABs and base inhibitors. So trying to attack the amyloid pathway at two different ways at the same time. What we're going to see now with this on the market is by definition, because if it becomes standard of care, background therapy, things will be added on top of amyloid. And everybody thinks that the future of Alzheimer's care is combination therapy, right? And that if you can get 10% slowing from amyloid and 20% from tau and another 15 from an autophagy compound or whatever it is, that's how you're going to get to meaningful change. The other thing I would say is that the assumption that trials are going to have to use aducanumab as standard of care is only true in places where aducanumab is approved. And I'm sure that there's going to be a push to do Alzheimer's drug trials in places where aducanumab is not approved in order to make those trials more streamlined. Do you think this approval is likely to influence other agencies in other jurisdictions to approve it? Well, I think that's going to depend a lot on the pricing, because unlike the United States, regulatory regulators in many other countries are closely aligned with payers, and they're going to be reluctant in the extreme to unleash 
enormous costs on their healthcare systems in the absence of solid data that there's benefit. Looking at the stock markets here, we've seen nearly every biotech ETF or index is up. Eli Lilly has gained more than $23 billion in market cap. They, of course, are in the Alzheimer's race as well. AC Immune is up double-digit percent, and so is BioArctic. I'm sure there's some that I'm overlooking at the moment. Selena, who are the up-and-comers that you're watching next? Who might benefit the most from this decision today? So some of the next therapies to read out will be other amyloid-targeted therapies. Roche's gantanuramab previously failed phase three trials, but it was at a much lower dose than it's being tested in the ongoing graduate one and graduate two trials. Those data are expected next year. And since its failed trials, the company has shown that it does much higher doses, do a better job at removing amyloid. And then the, the other one everybody's got their eye on is, is of course, Eli Lilly's Donanumab, which had promising data at the ADPD conference this year that showing efficacy that was really in line with aducanumab's eMERGE study, but with an even more refined study protocol. So to get into the trial, you had to have both a positive amyloid scan and have a tau PET scan in this Goldilocks range of not too high and not too low. How that then will translate into how the therapy gets used in the real world setting will be interesting. Those are two of the big ones. And then also in the fourth quarter this year, outside of the amyloid hypothesis, cortexymes phase two trials is going to read out final top line data for an infectious disease hypothesis. Excellent. Well, we'll have a series of stories and data bites for you on the approval today and through the week. Oh, I think we're going to be digesting this decision for a little while to come. <laughs> I bet we will. This is on our editorial meeting today. The big boss simply said, this is a big story. Have fun. So we will try. Selena, looking forward to reading your piece later today. And Steve, I know you're putting out calls to lots of people on the Washington front to see what they have to say. We should have some good stuff for you. All right. I'd like to step out of Washington, D.C. and Alzheimer's for a little bit here on our podcast. As you heard at the top, Josh Berlin, our executive director of BD and one of our old Asia hands, is on to tell you about our upcoming China Summit. Josh. Yeah, Jeff and team, thanks for having me on, um, particularly on such an exciting day. Wanted to let everyone know that we are pleased to announce that our eighth Biocentury Bay Helix China Healthcare Summit will take place November 16 to 19, 2021 as a hybrid event. So that means there'll be a venue in Shanghai. Plus, if you can't make it to Shanghai due to travel restrictions, or otherwise, you will have full access to the entire program via our digital platform. Registration opens this week on our website, biocenturychinasummit.com. And there is a special early bird rate if you register before September 15th. We're looking forward to record attendance, record global attendance in particular this year, and our best program yet. For those of you who haven't attended before, you might not know that for the last seven years, Biocentury, Bay Helix, and our insights partner, McKinsey & Company, have convened this event to explore China's journey over the bridge to innovation and how China biotech will fit into the global biotech ecosystem. It's really hard to believe, maybe I'm just dating myself, but it's hard for me to believe anyway, this is our eighth year 
When we started this event back in 2014, there was no biotech chapter on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. The China FDA, now called the NMPA, had not yet joined the ICH or launched many of its recent reforms like the 60-day IND or priority reviews. There was practically no way for an innovative therapy to be reimbursed by China's NRDL, and patent reform was really a dream that many expected not to happen. And many, if not most, of the China biotechs you will hear from on this year's program did not exist. So that's why we called the China Summit the Bridge to Innovation, and it was represented in a graphic that McKinsey showed in its first China Summit report back in 2014. The graphic showed three pictures of bridges representing various scenarios, a broad bridge to innovation, a narrow bridge to innovation, or a broken bridge to innovation. And now here we are in 2021 looking at a rapidly developing China biotech ecosystem with many well-funded companies developing innovative therapies for both Chinese and global patients. And increasingly, we're also seeing China and Western biotechs collaborating to accelerate global drug development by leveraging the strengths of each. So that's why this year's China Summit theme is called Time to Deliver. As we deliver our eighth anniversary this year, we recognize China's number eight as a harbinger of wealth. And we ask, what are China biotechs creating with all the money raised? And when will patients and investors get their ROI now that we have actually crossed the bridge to innovation? So BioCentury, Bayhelix, and McKinsey will explore this theme with two days of strategic panels featuring industry leaders and investors from both China and the West. This program is developed each year by an organizing committee chaired by Dr. Steve Yang, who's the co-CEO of Wuxi Aptech. And BioCentury will also select 50 plus biotechs from China, Asia, and the West to present on our roadshow track. So if you're interested in presenting or again in attending, please check out our website, biocenturychinasummit.com. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out to me or anyone on the BioCentury team to get more information. One other plug, I, I did want to remind everyone that McKinsey is our insights partner on this event. So they will be returning this year with their eighth China Summit report which will provide exclusive data on the China ecosystem and perspectives from China biotech leaders. So that'll really be one of the highlights of the event as it is every year. So we hope to see you either in Shanghai or digitally in November and are looking forward to a, a really good event. Excellent. And of course, we're following a lot of what's happening in China on our website via some of our deep dive coverage on what these companies are up to. It Feels like yesterday that Xi Lab got off the ground. That's Samantha Dew's company in licensing play just last week. They did another deal that shows that they are becoming a lot more ambitious and a lot more willing to spend more money up front. And within the past year, we've seen two pretty cool companies, cross-border companies, get up and running. Lian Bio, which is the Perceptive Advisors cross-border company has a deal with Pfizer, and they've just in-licensed their fifth drug last week. And Lonnie Mulder portfolio company, Zenis, is getting up and running, and they just made a splash by hiring Dr. Wamu to run the show. Now, suffice to say, we left a lot on the cutting room floor today. Go to biocentury.com to tuck into our ASCO coverage. We had pieces on how fusion proteins lead in the TGF beta blockade. 
Lauren Martz, as always, with the strong copy. Uh, she did a piece on adjuvant indications and their untapped market potential and a piece on bi-specific checkpoints and how the data at ASCO bode well for the coming wave of therapies. Sandy Wong says muscular dystrophies are poised for what could turn out to be a step change in the field. The twist is that the major impact might come from compounds addressing the disease biology as opposed to its genetic roots. Steve dug into Barda Ventures, HHS's first foray into venture capital. And Paul Bonanno spoke to Jim Tannenbaum of Foresight Capital about how two new Foresight deals are building on the firm's investment in relay therapeutics with computational tech and AI opening doors. That's all we have time for. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.